Chopping wood inside. And we're back. Tom, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, my friend. How's it going? How many times have you watched uh, Twin Peaks since the 2018 started? I've watched parts 17 and 18 <laughs> once. I watched part 14 part 11 and part five, which we're about to do tonight, but I wanted to kind of familiarize myself uh, before we did our podcast. So a few times, what about you? Uh, zero. Well, I'm about to watch, uh, we're about to watch episode five. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've thought about it a lot. We've tweeted about it and uh, we got some good news from Showtime today. So we, you know, we're all thinking about it. The Golden Globes are tomorrow. So uh, you want to talk about that at all? Or do you just want to jump right into five? No, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the TCA, the Showtime Winter TCA, because there were some juicy quotes from uh, yeah. David Nevins and Gary Levine, who you know, run the show there at Showtime. And um, basically, they said that the door is open for more Twin Peaks. Um, they said that there hasn't been any real kind of discussions, but Gary Levine did say um, in relation to Lynch that... He doesn't know how soon he wants to do more. So that implies to me that there might have been some kind of discussion at some point, whether during a production or during, you know, after the show aired. Um, for me personally, watching the series and seeing how 18, part 18 unfolded, basically with, you know, Cooper going back in time, saving Laura in part 17, but how 18 unfolded with our, their, the two major Twin Peaks characters, the icons of Twin Peaks, Laura Palmer and Agent Cooper, returning to Twin Peaks pretty much at the end of part 18 and, and how it ended is a great segue to future iterations of, of Twin Peaks. And I just can't believe that when Lynch and Frost were conceiving this, that they didn't have some kind of discussion about you know what that meant and what it could mean for you know the future of Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's interesting. No one really has ever talked about Twin Peaks being like a brand. They talked about it being like their biggest selling brand. And like all, I think about all the merchandise you see, and they said that he wanted to make sure Lynch was in on everything. You know, do you think Lynch is signing off on on like the the double R waitress dresses and all the, the tchotchkes and stuff out there. Like, good, not good. Love it. Like, he's, he's part of that? Yeah, I think he, he's, we know. What do we Is know about cut? him? He's full creative control. Like a George Lucas just... cut, like a little percentage on the, on the merchandising? Yeah, of course they do. Yeah, but I think the big thing was the Blu-ray. I think he knew exactly what he was doing when he signed off on the filmmaker, Jason S., giving him full access um, to the creative process and then basically, you know, allowing all that footage to, to be released. Um, I, I, like we talked about before when we did the Blu-ray review, it's, it's almost like a, a whole new Twin Peaks experience watching him on set. And I think it was an inducement uh, for uh, maybe non-fans or people who are on the fence of buying it to actually buy it because of that and uh, because it's money in their pockets but it's also you know continues to build the Twin Peaks brand so yeah I mean with Twin Peaks being an international um, show having an international audience all the books all the merchandise all the ancillaries everything it is a cash cow and, and David Nevins pretty much confirmed that um, today and that, you know, like you said, that like Lynch is signing off on all these things here. And, and we got a little, you know, I wouldn't say a tease, but the door literally being open for future um, seasons of Twin Peaks, which makes me very happy, A, as a fan, uh, but also like hopeful that this, this very well could happen in, in the foreseeable future. Well, I hope so. I mean, it sounds like that Showtime is definitely ready to do it, but it all depends on how long it takes for Lynch to gear up to get the energy and the inspiration to come back and, you know, hit another one out of the park. You know, hopefully, you know, it won't be too long. But I, I feel a lot better about it. I feel very good. Do you want to get into our uh, our topic du jour? Uh, we're going to do a review of, of part five. We are uh, going to do a, uh, yeah, which for me is one of the, I mean, I love all of them, obviously, but part five is, I, 
for when the show was released, they dropped the first four, and we had to wait two weeks for part five. And uh, I think that maybe a, some, for some people, after you know watching all of those episodes um, and waiting the two weeks, that there was maybe an expectation. And the way that it unfolded, basically a big chunk of part five takes place at Lucky Seven and, and the life of of Cooper as Dougie Jones. So I think a lot of people, maybe some fringe fans and maybe some coffee and pie fans who were expecting more of the, of, of that milieu didn't get it. And I was shocked to find on IMDb um, that this episode is the second lowest rated out of all 18 hours. Only part 12 is, is rated lower than part five. And I think a really? big reason why is because of that is because of that expectation, those two weeks and the way that it unfolded. But I found a lot in this episode that I really liked. I think it's one of the stronger episodes. Yeah, I think we the introduction of Dickie Horn. We get to see the menace of that. There's a lot of weird stuff that goes on in this episode. And I think you're right that, like, this episode, though, a lot of the fans, even you and I, were like, <laughs> how long is this Dougie shit going to last, man? <laughs> and I think right, this cause... episode, we were like, uh-oh. <laughs> it could last a fucking long time. And I think that was the – everyone got freaked out by that, you know. Obviously, right. it came, paid off and was awesome. But, uh, yeah, dude. Okay, are we ready to start this thing? We're going to start at the Rancho Rosa logo again? Is yeah, let's do it. All right, let's hit play. Yeah, I also yeah. think that uh, uh, that uh, tomorrow night, as the credits roll, that uh, the Golden Globes are airing, like you mentioned, and Kyle yeah. McLaughlin is nominated. And uh, I... Put your stooges in the competition? I think you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> De Niro, McGregor, Jeffrey Rush, who else? <laughs> uh, Jude Law, I think, for the Pope. Young, Young Pope, Pope, I think. Yeah. He might be the only, yeah. uh, the, the hardest, I think, uh, challenger. I don't think anybody really, because people, people love that show. I watched a few episodes, but uh, yeah, I think, I think Kyle could win. I don't think he will, but I think there's a, there's a decent chance. I think, I think it could happen. There's the love of Jacques Tati. Yeah, I agree. It's, it, it, not being very objective, right? Hopefully for some Jacques Tati fans, but yeah. not being really kind of objective. Um, for you know this category, obviously, I just really think um, that Kyle McLaughlin, even for non-fans of Twin Peaks, if they were able to watch the whole arc of his character in this in these eighteen hours, it's undeniable of how fantastic a job that he did. And I know these award shows, there's a lot of behind the scenes and and whatnot, but I, I really think that he deserves it. I'm glad he, at least he was nominated, but I really hope he pulls it out. Hope he wins. Yeah, it takes him out of it takes him the big leagues at least. You know, people didn't really expect this of him, and so I think the whole Dougie angle really sold me that this was a master performance. Here we are, dude, opening on Vegas with the instrumental music. Right, and we're gonna cut right to. See, the first shot was Fantasyland. It right Rancho Rosa, right <laughs> at uh, with the two hitmen um, who we saw in part three, and now we're getting reintroduced to them and a new character, Lorraine the Warrior. Um, who obviously was the one that got the job from Duncan Todd, right? From part two, didn't he say, yep. like, tell her yep. she's got the job. So it's got to yes. be her. I think yeah. it is. Yeah. So Do I thought this characters was a, are real? The, the <laughs> because of our theory? Yeah. No, yeah, I, I don't want to jump too far into that mode. I want to really kind of focus yeah. in on just well, Let's take it for what it is, face value. Yeah. But I love this kind of introduction of Lorraine, and it really... And after the first four hours, I think we got a sense of the speed of Twin Peaks, that it was going to be more deliberately paced. And here we have this character, and this scene was probably like one line on the page, but it's setting it up. There's a slow kind of push into her character. She's obviously very worried. She's hesitating making this phone call that could very much like you know seal her fate. And I just love the mood that it creates. It's this music in the background that's probably was queued up by Big Dean Hurley, who we'll see later uh, playing the drums at the Roadhouse. But um, I, I just thought this was a great introduction to the scene even though we're not in a familiar territory setting it up with this mysterious black box in, in Argentina which I have kind of a theory on at the end when we return to it but uh, I was about to ask you like what the hell is the connection to the box we still never figured it out well it's like I guess a hub. It's, a, it's, a, it's like his answer machine Mr. C's, Mr. C's answer machine somehow that clears all of his data keeps him from being traced you know what? I think that's, I mean, that's kind of what I, I, I think is that he has this set up in Argentina, right? It's under this light bulb. So we've got this connection with electricity and it makes those two red light, those red lights light up like his phone did when, he, when Jeffries called him in part two. But my thinking is that 
it is some kind of device that he is using as like an answering service, and it's obviously connected to Lorraine and this this hit job. I think that somehow he is able to either psychically get the messages because obviously he's not going to Argentina, and he knows that this hit job isn't really working. So what he does is he cues it by saying the cow jumped over the moon to kind of dissolve, pretty much covering his tracks like he does with all of his uh, burner phones, and it's done because we never return to it again. Like all the other, you know, uh, related material uh, to the hit is done through Duncan Todd in the future. Yeah, it's like a cloud or a Black Lodge cloud or something. It's helping him yeah. like, clear data and it's washing all of his information. Well, here we are now at Constance. She just pulled uh, Dougie's wedding ring out of Major Briggs's dead corpse. Yeah, but another great introduction with her with doing her comedy routine. Yeah. Um, one thing that about this scene though was where she says that well, I believe this you know he died is is. His, this man's head was cut off or someone cut off his head. But according to Hastings, right, didn't Major Briggs' head kind of come off his body and, and kind of disappear in the zone or whatever? Yeah, but I'm not sure he's a reliable narrator. He's <laughs> That's out. true. Because I think she would be able to tell whether or not it was actually cut. But it would be interesting if that was the case, if he was actually decapitated by Mr. C or the woodsman. Yeah, from like a, you know... Lodgy and like, uh, you know, sword, something that's from not the earth. Some kind of Excalibur. (laughs) Well, here we are with Coop in jail. (laughs) Right. What does he say? Something like, uh, and now now food is coming. coming. Yeah, he's predicting things. He's smart. Yeah, and another really kind of deliberately paced scene, but I love how it just creates the mood is just this long shot down the corridor with the jail cell, and you have this guard just taking his time, bringing his food. There's really no cutting, and Mr. C takes it. And this... By him looking into the mirror and us seeing Frank Silva, which was great, uh, watching the Blu-ray, it's much clearer. When I was watching it live, it was very dark, and I think I missed it the first time. It was very, very clear on the, on the Blu-ray, but I think him doing this, Lynch showing Bob in the mirror and cutting to episode 29 where you see yeah. Bob and the Cooper doc <laughs> like doesn't he cut to it like over and over again yeah I, with the great like that music too it's fucking scary it's good yeah and I think this was done I believe this was done for the audience the people who um, aren't yeah. really Twin Peaks fans to kind of connect the dots okay this guy there, something is in this guy now the fans knew what was going on but I think it was done because he cuts to the him smashing his head in the mirror right before he says how's Annie as well so yeah, I think it's kind of, kind of yeah I think it's connecting the dots I agree it's like it's also kind of camp I was we were talking about that it's like <laughs> Coop was never or Mr. C was never truly terrifying like Bob he was almost like a, a campy version of terrifying <laughs> like this scene it almost seems like it comes from a comic book when he's, his face turns into Bob which is great <laughs> Well, I thought his scenes in the both interrogation <laughs> scenes with Cole, Albert, Tammy, and then with Diane, I thought those were pretty terrifying. Those were the those were good. Two yeah, those were the where, best parts. I wonder, like, should they kept that that voice alteration throughout the entire series? What would happen? <laughs> would it been scarier? Maybe. I love that voice. I, I, I know. I, I love the voice. Yeah, would not have like, it would have been great if he could have dropped into that octave when things got really evil. You know what I'm saying? Like, why did he drop into that voice only when he was being interrogated? Because it seems like that voice would not clear him of any suspicion. That makes him sound more suspicious <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and more insane <laughs> than his regular Mr. C voice. So it's very right. interesting. It's very curious. Well, here we are now with uh, uh, <laughs> Stephen going in for a job interview. Clearly with Snake. With Snake, yeah. yep. He's I thought this was a together. great kind of role reversal or only scene with uh, Mike, um, a.k.a. Snake. He's obviously made uh, a good life for himself. And here he, he is in a position of power interviewing a young punk that he used to be. And I, I think and, I, you know, uh, I'll posit there are quite, I'll throw this to you. I think that he actually did this as a favor for Bobby because he's married to Bobby's daughter. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's a good connection point. I've not thought about that because why the hell else would he be in here? You know, so probably, yeah, he probably was... walks in and he's jacked out of his gourd, completely unprepared. <laughs> he's not even got his tie on straight. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's a joke. There was also a great establishing shot before scene. we went in of a different location of Twin Peaks. It was just like a street, and you saw places of business. Yeah, but he's like a you saw the ship. mountains in the right. background. Yeah, it was it was a great mood piece. Well, he just got uh, kicked out of his ass. Right. <laughs> But he did get some great fucking feedback, though. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> and now we're at the trail. Oh, here's the scene. He's, he's talking to, to Harry. 
Is yeah, okay. So that he's got cancer, right? We didn't know until this this scene, or do we already know? Well, no, I think I don't think we get it in this scene. I think it's revealed in another scene later. But do you remember watching the Blu-ray, the scene where uh, Robert Forrester as Frank Truman was on the phone, and Lynch was, you know, doing his coal, you know, in his director's yeah. chair, feeding him yeah. the lines, yeah. or not feeding him the lines, but doing his lines. But before, when he was when they were rehearsing the scene. I think Lynch makes a comment in relation to Harry Truman's character that we'll figure that out. I think that that was something that was kind of a last minute thing. I Because we know that Michael Onkin was supposedly looking for his jacket and was going to be in this new show. So I think that he was in the script. And what happened was, we don't know the details, but he, he, you know, he backed out. Something happened where he did not appear in the show. And I think that's when they just transferred his character to Frank and made some alterations. But my thinking is that the Doris character that we're seeing here, his wife, that since they probably went through all the casting process, since Michael Anke probably, I think he backed out real late in the game, that this would probably have been his wife and his yeah his yeah his 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 future what we would see you know happen to him in these 25 years that he married this woman had a son who died in one of the wars um because i don't think they've probably rewrote that on the fly i think that they incorporated these phone calls um because i think forrester even mentioned at one point that lynch literally wrote the the scene the dialogue right beforehand and gave it to forrester so i think it was just something very spontaneous yeah, it did seem like in 17 and 18, before it started, like I thought for sure that if Coop is in town, that Coop would go see Harry, that we'd see Harry at the end. And we didn't. Right, right. But it, it, the, they could have just killed him off. That would have been the easy thing to do, right? Yeah. And this is the fun, think, this is funny, the one when his wife is in here. And I, like, people thought it was, they didn't like it, the scene, but I, or her character, because she was just coming in yelling and going crazy. But I think it's a really great comic performance she gives. <laughs> I, I agree. It's I had my first time I watched it, I was frustrated because... I just really didn't find it that interesting, and it just went on for so long. I wasn't really kind of accustomed to this pace. Uh, but on a rewatch, I think it's—I think you're exactly right. I think it's absolutely hilarious, and I think it gives depth to Truman's character and depth to you know just the you know the Twin Peaks uh, community um, as a whole. Um, this is just kind of a fringy character, but it kind of fits in perfectly with you know the kind of the mood of the town. That there's that yeah, anger, watching, there's and not watching with the sound down too. Like it's like her physical acting is just like pronounced and hilarious. Like you could, she's funny just <laughs> she without that, hearing. Yeah, without hearing what she's saying, it's just. It's and just she did hilarious. that flash, right? Didn't she flash him at one point? Yeah, I'm not um, sure that's this this one, but there's a couple scenes that she does. Oh, that. maybe it was another one. Okay, yeah. yeah. Now we're here. We are. We're seeing uh, Sunny Jim not looking too chipper. I wonder what's going on with him. I was well, like, why what, do you what, think? I never really got this. What is this? I mean, I understood that like maybe that Dougie is now experiencing the fact that here we are in this planet and that it's not always joyous and that there is pain and suffering in uh, the world. And even in his son, you know, who was just eating pancakes and having a great time with. And uh, I don't know. What do you think about this scene? It's kind of interesting. It's you kind of stole my thunder. Cause I was going to kind of throw that to, to you because I, I had the same thoughts and my real instinct, my instinct in watching the scene the first time and, and, and on a rewatch is obviously Cooper because this is Dale Cooper is kind of living like a zombie and uh, you know, delayed reactions and not really having emotions and everything that goes you know with that. But something with the Sunny Jim, there was kind of almost an instant connection in the previous episode where you know they did the thumbs up and then they had that moment at the breakfast table and just seeing how his son was sad, even though it's not his son, but seeing how Sunny Jim was sad somehow resonated with Cooper. And it might've been the fact that, you know, he's been gone for 25 years. There was some kind of recall, like you know, I missed out on this whole thing, this family, or maybe he knew somehow what Dougie Jones represented and how, you know, probably a poor of a father that he was and how it affected not only, you know, Janie E, but Sunny Jim and was reacting that way. Yeah. That's interesting. It's also, it's like, I think he might be just gaining, like learning about humanity you know, like learning what being human is as well, you know, because right, kind of starting, he hasn't, again, been, on, starting he hasn't been on earth. Yeah. He hasn't been on earth in a long fucking time. It's not, it's not the same. You don't see a normal human emotions in the lodge. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He didn't, he didn't, somebody didn't, didn't take his face off or anything. So he <laughs> wet stuff coming out of the eyes. Yeah. yeah no, I, so now we got the two cars doing the drive by. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, so we have yeah. the, the hitmen coming and, and seeing now, Okay, so these the second drive by, they're casing the Rancho Rosa neighborhood, 
and they spot Dougie's what like Ford Escort. Is that really, yeah? Is that really boost worthy? Is that like kind of a well? He's got a cool car? Dougie Love like uh, you know <laughs> license plates. So maybe there's something in the trunk. Cool. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, uh, I, I found that kind of uh, curious as to like, oh wait, whoa, that's uh, that car. We're gonna go ahead. And, yeah, I was kind of uh, scared. I was like, who the fuck are these guys? And then it turned out to just be not, nothing characters really. I thought they were that car, the music. It, it was going to bespell some big bads, but they were not at all. Well, do you remember like watching it that just we were discussing? Sorry, we were discussing that, you know, how maybe Rancho Rancho Rosa might have been kind of manufactured or in a different timeline. And then when I saw that car, that black car, the second car, black, second black car pull or that black car pull up, that it reminded me of Bobby's black car in the original series. Yeah. And that there might have been some kind of connection with Twin Peaks in this. Is it? Uh, a charger, right? Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, I think it's a charger. A, a Cuda, those, maybe, yeah, or something. something. Like that, I'm not good with similar. cars. Yeah. Well, this is it. This is the start, I think, of the big section, the kind of the lucky seven section. Yeah, that everyone's like, what the hell? <laughs> they were like, what is this? You know, I mean, I remember watching it too. Like, what is, is this what this is going to be? Like, how long is this going to last? You know, because it just, it takes, people couldn't, they were like, how could she not know that he's, you know, not A, not her husband, and B, just, this doesn't seem realistic. You know, it's, t- it's getting into the Tati world. And it's, he's slowly leading us into the, the hot water. You know, he's changing the tone for us. This is not anything like we've seen in any Twin Pe- or any Lynch movie, really. You know, so it still was, we were still taking, we we're getting used to it. Yeah, the first line that we get here um, after Cooper uh, makes his way eventually towards the elevators is the Phil character. And his first line is, off in dreamland again, Dougie. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's another. I epic. love the statue, man. This is like a, a poignant. Uh, another him becoming human, I suppose, or trying to remember his past. Yeah, and we thought that that we might have been talking about this thing. Yeah, yeah the statue might have been um, a reference to you know Philip Jeffries. Some people speculated that it looked a lot like David Bowie, but Lynch actually um, said at one of his festival of disruptions that it was an homage to his father. Yeah. His father, when he was very young, was like a like a like in this kind of fire tower, um, and he would have to climb up and like yell. Uh, to the firefighters if he saw anything and at some point he you know uh, rigged up some camera Lynch even comically said like the first selfie where he rigged up this camera and took a photo of himself like holding his pistol out in that same pose and that's was the homage to to his father who you know if you read anything about Lynch's early life was a huge huge influence on 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 David Lynch uh he worked in the forestry department and would take him out into the woods. And that's where Lynch discovered the, the ants, you know, in the trees. That's where he like saw the, the, the dirty yeah. bearded men that <laughs> still writing about them right. years later. Well, doesn't when Lynch is going into the zone, doesn't he have like a six shooter just like the statue, like with yeah. his dad? Yeah. yeah, and Cooper in the secret agent, whatever the autobiography he has when he's a kid, he has the FBI story poster over his wall and his, on his bed. And it's got Jimmy Stewart as the FBI lead doing that same pose. Well, yeah, didn't because you talked about that in one of our earlier podcasts yeah. that you thought or you said that that pose was almost exactly the same as the FBI story poster, right? Yeah. So as a character, you know, we know why Lynch did it, but as a character, that's probably what it is. Is he's remembering that? Yeah. You know, right. it's, it's flashing back to his childhood. That image is iconic in him, even though it's buried underneath all the layers of Dougie. <laughs> right. I love this elevator scene. Like Josh Fadim, like this guy, this kid is great. <laughs> yeah, this is just, this is Lynch <laughs> so and Frost comedy. Yeah, this is kind this of is their great. absurdist comedy. Yeah. This is their pace, their speed. It's not, uh, it's like you said, more kind of a Jacques Tati, uh, who <laughs> Lynch is a huge fan of. His eyes lighten up. He's just say, hey, sorry, Dougie, didn't get one for you, buddy. <laughs> and he's just like a child. This is wonderful. And it's just like, it's a callback. It makes us all... It just gives us all joy, I think. I think everybody, this is probably a universally loved scene, I would think. I completely agree with you. And I uh, just love his reaction, Phil's reaction of how he's holding the coffee, <laughs> drinking it. And, like uh, Trump, just, right? When he drinks the water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Stole your line, but there. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, my friend. Um, why do you think Phil, because this was really kind of the start, other than Sonny Jim and, 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 and Janie E, this is really kind of the start of a lot of people wanting to help Dougie or Cooper out. And here we see, like, you know, Cooper's trying to make his way, or not even trying, he's just kind of standing in this hallway, and Phil's looking at him. He, he feels compelled to help him. Do you think it's... Wasn't there a backstory, though, that he'd gotten a car accident or something? And that, that he had always been, he'd been like this for a while. Oh, 
since he had the accident. And so I think that's what right. they were having. Like he had probably been fairly normal until the accident. And I, we don't know what that even means. Maybe that was when he was tulped into there, but, uh, or manufactured, but, um, that they had been treating him special, um, before this happened. Now they're treating him extra special because <laughs> he's like <laughs> dropped a few levels on the IQ. Uh, but yeah, I think that was, that was it. They already had something. Okay. All right. That's good. Yeah. Cause I think yeah. that he actually got in that accident that was mentioned before, right before he started working with lucky seven. So maybe, you know, he kind of vacillated special, between yeah. the kind of the cab Dougie that we got a little glimpse of in uh, part three and someone who was maybe a little bit slower at times. But I also think he was never highly just, verbal, though, <laughs> the original <right>? Dougie. <laughs> but I also think that, you know, this is actually Agent Cooper. And, you know, you described him aptly as like a Buddha. He's kind of reawakened. He's kind of this newborn. And I think that he does have this kind of glow, to use use a log lady term here, about him that somehow emanates that people react positively to him because his presence is a positive influence on pretty much everyone that we see in Vegas. Yeah, he's like a pure essence. He's a child. Like people get all kinds of like banged around in the world. Their their pure essences come out when they're children, and then we all become adults and bitter and cynical. <laughs> he comes back in here. He's like a child, and everyone can see that in him. And uh, they want to. They want the. They want him to do well. And he's obviously you know got like uh, superpowers. He's because he's able to like you know use. The, he's using the lodge cues to get through this thing, and uh, his instincts, to, his FBI instincts, right? Because he see the bad dude, yeah. Right. He's not, if you watch him, I don't think that Cooper actually looks anyone in the eye during this whole, any of these scenes. He's looking at the coffee. He's looking at the statue. He's just kind of looking around. He's not really engaging anyone. But the first time he does is when Sizemore is talking about the Littlefield's arson case, which they have to pay out, which I believe is a direct correlation to the Mitchum brothers. And it's at that point that that flash of green appears on Sizemore and you see Cooper looks Sizemore in the eye. And that's when he says, you're lying. I mean, that this this tying in of the Mitchum brothers who we haven't seen yet, we'll see in a little bit um, with Cooper and how that eventually pays out. This is the first seed of that. But that's a huge development here. And what I want to ask you is that we know that Lynch and Frost, Lynch, I don't know about Frost, I'm sure he did, but Lynch really said that he watched Mad Men and Breaking Bad, I believe. Do you think that this whole section, the kind of the Cooper in Vegas, and especially the, the Lucky Seven, is their kind of sly kind of take on both of those narratives? Maybe. I mean, that's possible. I know that, like, I think Dougie has a... a a painting in his office that was like in, in Mad Men, like one of Draper's paintings. So they definitely were going for that. Um, you're just saying they just picked the two top best, most popular shows and riffed on it or something? Well, kind of. I'm just saying that I, I just know those are the only real two shows that I've, I've heard Lynch There's mention. no dragons. Yeah, I think they're throwing Game of Thrones <laughs> as well. <laughs> no, but it kind of makes sense when they're creating this narrative is that I don't think they specifically said, hey, we want to do this. I think that there was a reason why they conceived of the Lucky Seven Insurance Company and they wanted to have a, a narrative arc for Cooper, and this is just their their conception, but knowing that they were going to, you know, have this family life, this this work life, and you know, this 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 outer life with you know these mobsters and, and and everything, that they would somehow subvert that a little bit. And I'm not saying that it was taken directly from those two shows, but you know, we've seen uh, most shows have a setting that is familiar, and this is kind of a uh, an unfamiliar territory for us as Twin Peaks fans of having this kind of conventional office setup with characters that we've never seen before and we're going to spend a lot of time here and it would make sense that Lynch and Frost just don't want to play on the surface that they would want to kind of subvert it so here we go with Tom Sizemore I guess we can call him like uh, Christopher Plummer he's <laughs> one of the guys who <laughs> going to use his name but uh, right. he's, uh, he's the first one to see his powers yeah, and this is a great moment. Did I miss it with the, I was talking so much with Frank. The green tea. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that great? The green tea's awesome. I think that's a great, another great scene. Like, he's spreading joy already. Yeah. It was his first moment of spreading joy. At the, at and work. this was, I love too, is just bringing Dougie into the office and just how Phil leaves. He, like, kind of is told to close the door behind him, and he kind of stays in the office and kind of closes the door where he's <laughs> in the office. little kind of just physical comedy here. He turns around, and he has to be helped out, kind of like he was helping Dougie. I thought that was... Kind of interesting. Yeah, man. And Dougie's immediately captivated by the Battling Bud poster. Like a child would, right? You would see something kind of big uh, and kind of be drawn to that. Yeah, and he might recognize that that is him. Like that was him. That, that The man in front of him used to be that guy. 
you know, and maybe he's it's uh, triggering something in him in himself. As what do you mean? Like battling Bud was somehow yeah. he's evoking. Well, battling, look, battling. He's like looking on the wall, battling Bud. You know that that was him. He's old. He's this man, but he also was. That oh, man. oh, I see, I see. Okay, so right. maybe I was somebody else. <laughs> Who else have I been? <laughs> and then here's the he's the the agent, right? And the case files, because this episode is entitled Case Files, right? Yeah, I mean, this whole thing is like a whole sequence. It's just him getting little clues to remind him of, of who he once was. You know, I think that's what this is, right? In a Jacques Tati genre, bending madman type of wacky, uh, you know, set piece. Right, and th- what is going on, what I was talking about before is, is that you would think from watching a lot of these shows that, you know, a lot every, every scene like has a purpose, like every action has a purpose. And I'm not saying that that's not true, for Twin Peaks. And that's what I was talking about, like kind of subverting things or whatever here is that this is David Lynch in kind of a creating the kind of a conventional milieu here and kind of doing like a little different spin. I mean, just look at his main character, like you know, standing in the hallway, you know, holding his. Yeah, I probably could do without this. I could have done without this. We could have done the one, the one, the one time with Naomi. Okay, there it is. But why do we have to do this? He really, come on. Dude. What you mean? I'm talking about the kind of the scatological aspect or well, it seems like you know breathing to... in breathing out you know like drinking water like going to the bath like certain the fundamental functions of being a human being he might be able to get down faster than this <laughs> I, I certainly if i was naomi watts wouldn't want to send my husband to work if he didn't know how to go to the bathroom he just wet himself you know I think well but we questioned her like down. motivation for <laughs> what five episodes before she finally took him to the doctor right yeah, well, you know, it goes back to the whole dream theory. This is all just a I agree. strange. Maybe <laughs> Coop watched Mad Men from the Lodge, and he's like just doing his own Mad Men type of wacky uh, Vegas dream jaunt. Like, because I mean, you're talking about like the, the Mitchell brothers, and that that was the case file you're talking about in that meeting. Like, it was all faded. That he was faded to meet the Mitchell brothers. It was all this whole story was a, you know, it's a simulation. He's he's running through. Who knows how? Right, and they really finally um, kind of came together. Well, you know, they were set up here as having this, you know, kind of conflict, obviously, because of the money that he won at their casino. And eventually we find out about, you know, the arson case. But um, basically it was Belushi's dream that he had about Cooper and the cherry pie that, you know, prevented them from killing him and then brought them together. And uh, so that was, a, you know, unexpected development. But the fact that it was a dream, right? that uh, he couldn't really explain pretty much saved his life kind of fits into everything that we're seeing here in this, in this pretty much section that doesn't seem completely real because Murphy and I have been talking about this for a long time. Uh, really just don't believe that Cooper ever physically, ever physically left the black lodge. Yeah. This scene with the Mitchum brothers, like, uh, you know, shaking down, uh, Brett Gelman or the, the guy that lost the $450,000. Like I thought this was a great scene, man. And like Candy and Mandy and Sandy coming in, it felt like really like kind of terrifying Mr. Eddie blue velvety a little bit. And I thought we thought that was what they were going to be. And then he completely subverts that expectation <laughs> almost immediately in the, like the next episode, maybe. But uh, yeah, the scene as, as I first watched it was terrifying and, uh, and fantastic. And the great yeah, I mean, I, three girls. Right. On the surface, we have this scene of these heavies, like you said, you think you're going to we're going to see something out of Lost Highway with Mr. Hetty or, or Frank Booth in Blue Velvet. But in the backdrop, we have these, you know, three, you know, women, you know, Mandy, Candy and Sandy. Um, and they're the way that they're framed. They're not included um, in the action. So they're they're separate from it, and it creates this kind of uh, dreaminess to the scene because they, the guards are pulling. Yeah. Maybe they're not um, even real, dude. You know what I'm saying like well I mean we know they're not real if no one's real but it does feel like that they are, might be I mean we, when we, upon first viewing we thought maybe they could be like lodge entities that had just moved into that room and were watching it you know but that because they disappeared they were there in the yeah gone. because we don't see them we don't see them at we don't all see them in the shot yeah. yeah yeah and we have like you know obviously at Rancho Rosa we have the 119 woman who you know even yeah, Mark Frost house. It was, it was the front of her windows boarded up was she in that house I don't know, but if you go back to Rancho Rosa, we're, we're back at Rancho Rosa right now. But if you notice all the for sale signs, like in all these yards, like it took me a while to kind of get that. I think one of our uh, listeners pointed out that there's a scene, I think it's this scene when the car blows up, that you actually see other people um, coming out of one of their houses. I didn't think that we ever saw any people, but but we do. We obviously saw the we cars. We see the guys driving. in the cars. Yeah, we get that. So yeah, but none in the, the houses other than, you know, that one scene. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
But you know, we know Lynch is huge in a numerology uh, for you know any number of two five threes, four three zeros. But this little boy has that big number one right there on his his shirt. You know that was Lynch's specific design to have that one there. Um, and uh, I loved Do his. You think one one nine is the reversal of nine one one? Is that what this is? Well, I mean, it would kind of make sense, you know, because of like her, you know, maybe like what Frost said that. People who uh, you know speak backwards tend to have like one foot in you know another world. So that was like a line to me. Well, one one nine will reverse as nine one one, and you know this alarm. You know whether that uh, she's just calling out to someone because of some kind of vision, or she just senses something danger related to to Dougie. Um, for me, I just think it creates like this, just this off kilterness. This is kind of mood. We don't get any finality to her character. And here we are still talking about this woman. It's the, it's the pure genius of, of Lynch and Frost to pepper this narrative with all these little moments that, you know, that probably do tie into their notion of how, you know, the world of Twin Peaks, this, this iteration is unfolding. But to us as fans who aren't clued into that, it just did more mystery, more, more mysteries, more puzzle pieces. Well, it's like the she could be Mrs. Tremont and the kid, like in this world, like in, in the next world. Right. We never saw her, but, you know, there, she could be in every one of the worlds, every pocket universe that Coop shows up. She's this archetypical archetype that shows up in different embodiments. We've, you know, if, if she was one here, 119, then we get the Mrs. Tremont at the end. Then we have the original one from Firewalk with Me. There could be multiple ones, you know, there could be she could take many faces. That would play into the theme of, you know, identity that, you know, throughout. I I completely agree with you. I like that. I think it's easy to go along that line of like we have a woman and her son, mysterious. Well, what do we know? There's this Mrs. Tremont and her grandson. But this just the the idea, the seeing her rise up with that dramatic music after the car blows up. Yeah, think of this. I just had an idea. Like, because if she's Mrs. Tremont, right? Then, then she would be like Judy in a way. And so the only way Judy's that Cooper is allowed to have this little fanciful Dougie uh, Rancho Rosa moment is that he had to drug out Judy. <laughs> and that Judy in this Mrs. Tremont is so unconscious that she's unable to stop the dream. You know, like that she's drooling. She's got Thorsey. She's literally drooling and passed out. But if she wakes up, like she stands up in whatever episode that is and the scary music starts, maybe Judy would be awakening in the Rancho Rosa world. You pocket universe. You mean like one of the children of Judy, like Sarah Palmer? And yeah, or like just like Nado. saying, like if, if 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 somehow Mrs. Tremont is a Judy child, you know, and she she shows up in many different forms in many different universes, that you know, if Judy would be in this one as well, but uh, she was passed out, <laughs> right? <laughs> so Dougie got to have a little romp and he got to have a little fun for a little while in this world. Well, like I like the idea of this kind of century, you know, that's like you know, when Cooper, that's where he obviously. Um, you know, escaped from or he entered from the electrical socket in, at that you know, location in Rancho Rosa. And the house right across the street is this mysterious woman and her son. And uh, what if it was some kind of sentry, some kind of Lodgian sentry related to Judy or not? And she is somehow, you know, like you said, like narcotized, drugged up because this reality itself is all fucked up. Cooper's fucked up. Everything is kind of fucked up in this world. It doesn't really kind of make much sense. Um, and it never really kind of does. It doesn't really kind of have a finality to it other than Cooper waking up and snapping out of it. But as soon as he does, he pretty much says goodbye to his wife and kid and heads off to accomplish, you know, you know, his, his, his mission. So I, I do like that. That's very interesting. Well, it's, it, that's what I mean. That's what it's all about. The mystery. Keep the mystery alive. We're not supposed to have an answer to this. We're supposed to discuss this. <laughs> and I'll have a million different viewpoints. So we're still talking about it. Here we are now seeing Becky Briggs for the first time. Hey. She's getting some right, bread and yeah, dropping off some bread. Free. We can't hear what's going on, yeah. Well, no, I like how it's from Norma's point of view, and yeah. there's no music. A lot of these scenes, especially at uh, Lucky 7 um, and some of the other ones, like with Frank and Doris, um, they're, they're without music, and the scenes play out you know, for a long time, and there's not really a lot of action or cutting. And I think it's just kind of antithetical to how shows are produced now. now I'm not watching a lot of stuff but you know I'm just going along the, the, the Fred Ward line in the player which came out in 1992 is everything was cut 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 you know, 25 years later I'm assuming it's gotten faster quicker um, but uh, even for me who doesn't watch well that's that's, that's <laughs> Some true shows yeah. are really long but yeah I know what you're saying yeah but I, I like that and Norma you know from her point of view and the distance and it's kind you know, of Altman there's a, like Altman right right his kind of uh, his kind of uh yeah, omniscient camera, his roving camera that would just pick up on you know, various conversations. But I love this scene with 
Becky and, and Steven. This is really yeah, Steven. White Trans Am. That is a perfect car for him. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the red interior, that's sweet. Well, there's kind of like a boyishness to Steven in this scene. Um, you know, he's just, you know, obviously we know that he's young and he's troubled um, and, you know, obviously drugged out, but he has this kind of innocent quality or, uh, that comes out during the scene and pretty much it's all downhill. We don't get very many more scenes with him, but this really kind of establishes a relationship, but you don't get really kind of a hint of the darkness um, in their in their life because that's why it's it's so startling when he's really like beating the shit out of her in the trailer and he's fucking another woman and, and then wind up in the forest and we don't know if he kills himself. But uh, this was a, a kind of a drugged out kind of tender scene here between the two of them with the ultimate kind of like payoff with this iconic shot of Becky you know, stoned out of her mind, looking up to the heavens and listening to this, this, you know, old sixties tune. Yeah, it's great. Do you think like Bobby and Shelly, like ever hang out with like Steven's parents? <laughs> Who are his parents? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I That's a good question. That kind of brings up to a point of like, if we were like to get like a season four, right. Um, what if it was planned all along, that by Lynch and Frost, that what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and have this kind of cosmic 18-hour journey that we're going to go to all these different locations. We're going to have a cast of thousands. We're going to you know go to the universe and beyond, all these different you know dimensions. But what we're doing is, is that we're really just trying to bring our two main characters back to Twin Peaks. But we're not going to do it in kind of a conventional way. We're going to do it where you don't know where they are, what year it is, and if Laura Palmer never died. And all these scenes in Twin Peaks with all these characters, here are the new ones of Becky and Steven, and eventually with like, you know, Audrey and the Bobby and Shelley's, you know, uh, dynamic, even Nadine and, uh, and, and, and uh, Dr. Jacoby, that it's all this setup for the season four that would primarily take place in Twin Peaks, like the first two seasons. And then they, they kind of go back to that come full circle but it's not like a fan service it's not for nostalgia that they actually because this 18 hours exist that that was the intention that a lot of these scenes are just kind of foreshadowing future seasons yeah well i think so i mean this was like the first step this this scene here people were like oh okay this kind of feels like old twin peaks you know you got the two the rebel kids in the car doing the cocaine it looks like they're in the lodge in the car because it's got the red interior with those like curtains um, but then that kind of gets subverted as well because we don't get a lot of that. You know, I think some people were maybe excited to get, you know, a little young, a little youthful infusion into this cast, but they don't stick around long. I wonder if this scene would have been better received because I wasn't able to listen to the subtitles the first 800 times I watched it. But now that I am, we get to see that joke he makes about the kneading. <laughs> You've been right. kneading it all week or whatever. And so maybe the scene would have been played better. Maybe it would have got a better rating on IMDb or whatever if people could have said <laughs> this punchline. Well, no, I just, I can't imagine that because what we're When I first saw it, I saw, I was like, he's talking like, I can't even understand what the hell he's saying. And she's into it. And I was like, God, she's an idiot for being, you know, hanging out with this guy. But now that I see his wacky humor, I think maybe, okay, I get it. I get get why she's into him. Yeah, but it it just seems like (laughs) what we watched in this series that Twin Peaks, I'm not saying it was an afterthought. Um, but the characters, we didn't spend as much time in Twin Peaks and even the new characters that we got, we didn't really get kind of conventional like arcs. Um, and this could be just a, obviously like an artistic choice or whatever, but it makes more sense to me as if there was a master plan in place um, for setting things up for a payoff that didn't happen in this iteration that would happen somehow somewhere down the line. I mean, Lynch and Frost are very prescient. Um, I think they know exactly what they're doing. I'm not saying they have, they've written four, five, six, and seven, you know, seasons four, five, six, and seven, but, um, or <laughs> eight. Guarantee that hasn't happened. <laughs> it almost seems like this scene was like a build up just to have the I love how you love me like bit. You know what I mean? Even though we get to see Steve doing his thing, that right. was the, that was the, the money shot almost of the whole episode. Oh, of course. I mean, yeah. that's one of the top 10 money shots, in my scene. opinion, of the yeah. entire series. That it's was beautiful. fantastic. Um, and we have Cooper. I love him how he's framed backwards. here backwards yeah. in the elevator. Up against backwards. the world. He doesn't care. Backwards. He's not conventions be damned. He's yeah, but, doing it his way. But he's backwards. Like, you know, yeah. if this is somehow like reverse, like a little yeah. that's a little visual clue there. Yeah. 
Are you saying that this is like a, a dream? <laughs> just saying? He's just backwards. Do you want to talk about the red balloons? Did we ever figure that one out? Did anyone figure no, that out? No, we never figured it out. But I thought that it was an exercise ball behind the 119 woman. But it turns out it wasn't really a balloon. So I wonder whether she had gone out to the fair to get that balloon because it looks like she had been out recently because it had not fully, uh, yeah, inflated. So it's a mystery. Here he is back at the statue, man. The statue is a yeah. beautiful. I love the way this, this episode ends. And the statue, uh, you know, it conjures like some emotion in him and some longing and some memory and, so, and being able to maybe miss the life that he never had. I mean, he, can you imagine 25 years erased? But uh, I think that that's what this is all about, longing. I can really appreciate it now more so on, you know, second, third, fourth uh, viewings. I mean, I was watching the show multiple times during the original run during the week, but now that some time has passed and I know how everything ended, I can really kind of appreciate these little moments uh, more because I'm not waiting for the next thing. Um, and that's really kind of, I think, kind of the, the key to really appreci- appreciating and embracing this show. I've read any number of reviews of, of people that just kind of, they stuck with it for a while and they kind of gave up for any number of reasons. And it's tough. This is really, really tough. I think, you know, this the Andy hard- and Hawk scene is very tough. People might have given up right during this scene. <laughs> Five minutes to shut you know, This is one of the, I like this scene though. I think I even liked it on first, first uh, watch. I mean, I just like the little subtle camera movement there's no real music and it's just very subtle and it's just yeah these two guys these familiar I just imagine like a little donkey sleeping Andy. underneath the tree inside Andy's head like I don't imagine him actually reading whatever he's turned to read. <laughs> you know he's not right yeah <laughs> he's but frowning I, like confused he's like semi-literate like our president <laughs> <laughs> no I did like this scene a lot I do like the setup of it but you know I guess I'm waiting for the payoff because I haven't seen it in a while I want to see what's going on here there is no payoff there's like never really any payoff <laughs> it's the whole thing about the Indians right he's like I don't, yeah. I don't see any Indians Hawk and then we cut to Dr. Amp. And we have our real like, kind of conclusion of the gold shovels that we saw originally. The first scene in the show, proper scene of the show, was Jacoby getting the shovels delivered. And then we see him spray painting them. And we were all wondering what the hell this could mean. And it's just uh, a way for everyone to shovel their way out of the shit, which now I can really, really, really appreciate after having lived through all of 2017. Yeah, what is that hat? It's almost like a uh, you know an airline pilot's hat mixed with like a golfer's hat. It's got a little ball on the top of it. He's wearing. Yeah, no, I think I read somewhere it has its origins in like either WW one or WW two or something. It's definitely something. Uh, I like his style. Uh, related I like his to look. the military. It's looking good. I do too. Yeah. His little thunderbolts on his bow tie. He's yeah. completely insane, but he's almost the most sane person in the entire town. Yeah, and I, I like uh, I was reading one of the articles on the Twenty Five Years Later site, and uh, I can't remember who wrote the article, but uh, they were attributing basically a lot of these Jacoby scenes and the underlying theme of you know shoveling your yourself out of the shit, uh, relating to a lot of our characters in the show, and especially with kind of Cooper. Um, and I never really kind of, I mean, obviously I knew what that kind of meant, but um, it really kind of. Kind of resonates from watching this again because well, yeah. so many characters are in the shit. Um, well, we're in the shit. I was thinking the viewers are in the shit. This is for us to hear too. I think this is Frost speaking. Well, that's what I. Audience. Yeah, when I was watching it, that's what I kind of took. This is kind of a Frostian touch here. He's kind of commenting a little bit on you know the times in which we're living on, kind of post uh, 2008. The last time we had like you know this, this the Great Recession, the second recession, the second. A big recession that we had. I would like the showtime to like start including some merchandise merch from Dr. Amp's like, you know, hideaway. He's got some cool stuff in there. Yeah. Flashlight. He's got the little, yeah, he's got like a bunch of stuff you could sell. I'd buy some of that. Yeah. Stuff. I like the little middle finger, the flip, the, the bird. I, I would kind of have that. Just kind of put it <laughs> out every once that. in a while yeah. and uh, wear it. There's yeah. Jerry in the woods. But, smoking a dude watching. Yeah. The last time we see him actually relatively sane. Yeah. That, that joint might have done it. Might have pushed him over the edge. <laughs> there was there had to have been something else, right? <laughs> Amsterdam he Express, had to have... yeah, pushed him. Yeah. <laughs> what a choice that is. What an artistic choice to never show what happened to him. You know what I'm saying? We never got to yeah. see it. You know, no, amazing. we didn't. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. really. And, and uh, him just, you know, trapped in the woods or just stuck in the woods and then eventually running and then lynching the, and the, uh, the extras in the Blu-ray. Doesn't he tell David Patrick Kelly that you're just, you're moving forward. You're, you're going after something. Like, trying to find it. Yeah, you're trying to find it. You're trying yeah. to get there to it. Yeah, he didn't really define it. But he didn't describe, obviously, what the it was. But, uh, and then we got our first scene of Nadine, right? This is the first time we, we've seen yeah, she's her. She's alive. She looks great. Looks the same. And she's, she's like happy. a... 
Dr. Amp acolyte, and she's drinking, I'm assuming, because from Frost's book, The Final Dossier, his, like, uh, his uh, hemp milkshake uh, recipe. That's oh, a hemp milkshake that. Okay, that she's cool. drinking. So, so Dr. Amp is really, I mean, if you read his, that was one of the longer chapters in The Final Dossier. You really found out, like, pretty much in exhaustive detail what happened to Jacoby since the end of the original series. I mean, he went all over the place. And uh, um, I like this this new version of Jacoby. Rust Hamlin is great. And uh, I just love how the expectations of uh, characters. I never would have guessed this for Jacoby. Never. Yeah, I thought that he might have killed Laura Palmer in the first season. I think that, uh, you know, yeah. I, I liked it better the first season when I thought he might be diabolical. I still like him now. But, no, uh, I agree. I, my, I think my favorite, my two favorite Jacoby scenes are the scene where he's with Bobby and makes Bobby cry, basically, or brings out that emotion within Bobby. And then also that scene with Cooper with the kind of the magic trick with the uh, ping pong balls. Yeah. And then doesn't Cooper go like, you know, Laura Palmer had sex with three men of the night she died. Or were you one of them? And he kind of gives that look and he kind of like sighs, exhales, yeah. and he goes, no. <laughs> also, also when he said like I smelled something weird, and he was like, "Well, it's common for a dead person to relieve their bowels." <laughs> yeah, he goes, "Nope, right. that's not it." Yeah. <laughs> yeah so don't you Dr. feel Amp's like gold you... shit dinging shovel? And uh, we go, God, we cut to a lot of places in this uh, episode. We're now at the Pentagon with uh, Winston Zeddemore. Um, and this was Lieutenant Knox, right, who winds up and having one of these great scenes in the entire series in Buckhorn. When she's on the phone with uh, with uh, Ernie Hudson and the woodsman is seen in the background walking down the hallway in the morgue. That's one of my favorite scenes in the yeah, entire series. Yeah, that's one of the scariest scenes in the entire series. It's yeah. good to see him around, though. Well, so, we're getting in this scene is the the uh, revelation that Major Briggs's prints were found at the crime scene in Buckhorn or in Ruth Davenport's apartment. But it's also happened 15 other times in the preceding 25 years. And that's yeah, still a we huge never figured mystery. that out. That's the one that you really were working on trying to figure out. Did you ever come to any uh, summation? The only thing that I could really kind of make sense of is that since he was doing this kind of uh, quantum leap Doctor Who thing, going backwards and forwards in time, and that he had Dougie's ring in his stomach, is that his crime scenes, even though we didn't you know see where they were when they happened, were related to Mister C. And that he was doing that for someone to put the puzzle pieces together. I mean, even though that never came to fruition, that's the only thing that I could kind of make sense of. The FBI fell down their job again. They should have figured that out a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's been given clues for years. <laughs> right. Too much well, Bordeaux flying in the uh, uh, the Philadelphia offices. Yeah. Well, here we the, go. Here's Riley on the ripping the ripping the keys or the guitar riffing little Lynch. And, and who's on drums? Oh, little uh, Dean Hurley rocking out. Looking good. I love this scene. I, I, I thought we were ending here, so I was a little depressed. But then when I realized we were kind of getting a scene, because every scene that we had really at the Roadhouse really signaled the end of, of the episode you know, preceding this. Um, but yeah, this was a great, great scene. The introduction of little Dickie Horn. I love the music. This is, I think, one of my top two or three songs of the entire uh, uh, series. Really? Um, I love this <laughs> you song. You hardly yeah, liked any of the songs. This is the one you liked. <laughs> I like the Windswept song. And, oh, that's uh, yeah, that, that's really good. And uh, I loved uh, Just You and I, the rendition. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, but, Little Dickie uh, Horn here reminds me a lot of Audrey, like the, his mannerisms, the way he's smoking a cigarette, looking evil. Yeah, I agree. It's yeah. Horn in and, uh, this character right here, the guy who uh, asks him to put out a cigarette, he was in Mulholland Drive. And, uh, who did he, he play played, in Mulholland Drive? He played the character um, that the hitman kills. Um, he had the black book, like, you know. Oh, no uh, way. That's him? Holy shit. That's, him. that's great. Yeah. I would not. That's great. Oh, dude. So is he German or is he not German? No, I think his name is Victor uh, Castellano, Castellanos. Yeah. And so assuming maybe he's. Uh, uh, Italian maybe or something I, I don't know but he didn't really have an accent in Mulholland Drive no uh, not at all he's, he was good like a, kind of a valley but guy. I think his name in the credits is like Federico or something like that so maybe he's you know, like, you know implied to be uh, foreign but yeah that was that's that was catch. a little yeah, good uh, catch yeah. that's good yeah. and we get our <laughs> there's Chad 
<laughs> what do you think of Chad, like, overall? Do you have, like, any kind of impressions of... Uh, I liked him as a character. He got a lot of screen time, but we needed to have a foil inside the sheriff's office, I think, and to be able to move the... I mean, but it was a little bit, obviously, like a caricature. It wasn't, you know, super nuanced performance or anything. He's just a bad guy. But uh, right. I liked him. I thought he was funny. I liked him eating, like, the Thanksgiving dinner by himself. Uh, <laughs> was it two Thanksgiving liked, dinners? Yeah, I liked him, like, going to confirm my pine cone. I liked this. You needed somebody like that. <laughs> right. And so I thought he did a good job. What do you think? No, I, I liked him too. I, I, I think you uh, kind of uh, summed that up uh, perfectly there. Um, and I like that you know we, we got him. He was still around in part seventeen. I, I love those jail cell scenes with you know the, him being mocked repeatedly. Yes. <laughs> and just being you know, that was just I thought that very comical. And we've got our little smoking babies here. Jane Levy, who is in the Evil Dead remake, and I think that movie Don't Breathe. This is her only scene, which I. She's, I'm not saying that she's a huge actress, but once I saw her, I thought that she would definitely play a role. I thought that since we got the Becky scene with Steven in this episode and the introduction of little Dickie Horn here with uh, you know these, these girls, little smoking babies, that this was going to be kind of the setup for the, the younger generation of Twin Peaks, that we were going to kind of get into some kind of plot line there, but that obviously never, never happened. But I love this scene as a standalone scene. The menace of... Uh, I thought that... Is his name Emin... What's his last name? I, I don't remember I the can't actor. Remember. Yeah, yeah, but he, I, I thought he was one of the the, the 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 better actors. Everyone was was great, but his performance. He's I think he's either Australian or he's from New Zealand, but he was fantastic. He he really played so many kind of different variants of this bastard child. Here he's pure kind of evil, and then there was the scene where he's driving with Mister C in part. You know what? Fifteen when he's about to die, or was it fourteen? And he's like. Looking kind of over, like kind of uh, you know, very childlike. I don't know if he doesn't know that that's his father, but there's kind of a vulnerability to him. And uh, so he, he played all these different kind of you know variants within the character very well. And uh, it's kind of sad to see him go, actually. You know, at the, yeah, uh, well, I thought he was going to be a lot scarier, but he, he wasn't necessarily that scary. But he was almost like a cartoon character, but he came, he came in with a strong open. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. And here's Chris Bell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Having she's got a photo of Agent Cooper that was taking taken from the first season. I think that might have been the scene with Jacoby with the ping pong balls in the uh, in the first season. Who took that photo then? Kind of a, Jacoby? Did Jacoby take the photo of him? The still photographer yeah. on set. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So did you get that what she was doing was she was looking at, obviously she's looking at fingerprints, but it was the Eriv that there was some kind of reversal thing going on. Yeah, this is when she realizes the fingerprints don't match up. And so she's going to go do the old reversal thing. So Yeah, but did you pick that up when you were watching it? Uh, No, I did not know anything. But I was like, okay, obviously I think she's realizing though that there's that there might be two different. There's some. There's a clue. I thought it went on a little bit long. (laughs) I still do. (laughs) This is like an homage to to Christabel, but uh, yeah. Get the point across, I think. Yeah, but this is this is David Lynch's muse. That's what I'm saying. You give us some extra muse time. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought this uh, scene was uh, something that didn't. Uh, once again, no music. Did it fill? Did it fill the rest of the episode? Like, make it longer. Like, to get to the 54 minutes or however long it is. 58 minutes and 58? I think 17 seconds. Yeah. Um, okay, here we, we're coming into our, our final scene of Mr. C. I love just this. I thought this was moments of kind of terror in his performance just how he's looking directly ahead as warden murphy enters he is exuding pure bob evil and the way he looks up at him as well yeah he's like an animal here at the end like he does i feel like this is the one time where kyle really uh, conjures frank silva like after he puts the when he makes the call here in a minute they cut to him and he i mean i don't know if anybody else thought that but i feel like he looks a lot like fucking bob dude He's got the animal eyes. He looks like that. He does a really great job in the scene, I think. Yeah, you know, there's that scene after, I think it's part nine, when he's walking to that um, location where Chantal and Hutch are after part eight. He's all bloody and he pulls that red bandana off the mailbox or whatever. But for me, um, his makeup, the way that he looks, I think he looks strikingly like Frank Silva. Uh, that's probably just my mind playing tricks on me, but uh, it is. I agree with you. In this scene as well, there's there's something you see or sense Bob physically in Cooper, or, or in Mr. C, in McLaughlin. I think it's great. The testament to his performance, I think. Yeah, how is he able to do this? Make the phone call, the little fancy finger work? How well, remember possible? he in part two, didn't he get the schematics for the Yankton Federal Prison? 
Um, yeah. Didn't he kind of Are those screens those? Dell screens is because he hacked the Dell, the Dell server? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's, he knew exactly what was going on. And we have our first mention of the mysterious Mr. Strawberry. Now, do you Mr. think that's Strawberry. Warden Murphy's dog? Uh, I don't think so. Why would you think that? <laughs> well, because of the whole, uh, well, we got the dog leg that was found in his trunk along with the machine gun and the cocaine. And we have that whole dialogue when he basically tells Warden Murphy about Mr. Strawberry, um, not who Mr. Strawberry is, but can't you just see like someone naming their dog Mr. Strawberry? And uh, No, I haven't. I never thought about that. That's funny. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, Golden Retriever is kind of orange. Maybe just, I but I don't know if, if dogs like to eat strawberries, but sure, why not? I think it's, that makes sense. <laughs> How is he doesn't doing jo- this? <laughs> doesn't Joanna Ray have a cameo, the casting uh, director? Yeah, right here. When they flip around, you're going to get to that cooking show right there. She's in the middle. Uh, for that little, I don't know how the cooking show ended up on the cha- on the, the monitors, but uh, <laughs> it's a camera. Yeah, no, I think you picked that up uh, on first view, and that uh, was a good catch. And, I think I read uh, it actually. Somebody somebody picked it up. That's, I didn't actually. I never knew what Joanna Ray looked like until somebody told me that was her. She actually showed up in the extras briefly, and, and yeah. one of the, I think it was like around around this time they were shooting this scene, if I'm not mistaken. She showed up on set uh, very briefly. She's actually, I think, also an associate producer. So this is the shot of Buenos Aires, Argentina, and we get our, our final shot of the black box underneath the light bulb, uh, connoting you know the electricity, the hum, and uh, it's in this... What a red herring Argentina was. Bowl. Argentina was such a red herring. Excuse me? I said Argentina was a complete red herring. Yeah, it was, right? I mean, we, but we associate yeah, it with completely. Philip Jeffries. And I just right. thought this was going to be the precursor to some portal jumping going to and fro Buenos Aires. And we never got it. Do we and see it again? It. What other episodes do we see it in after this? Any other ones? Buenos Aires? Yeah. No, that's it. That's it? This is that's it. That's it. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. It's a lot I mean, of a production value to go all the way to Buenos Aires to shoot one scene of an answering machine. Well, I don't think maybe they, they did didn't that. do that. No, <laughs> but I mean, they had a choice. They could have put that black box anywhere. They did that. I mean, I it has to be the connection with Firewalk with me and Jeffries. It's just one of those, you know, another rabbit hole for all of us to kind of like dive down into, and we never really got an answer. And that whole whatever that black box turned into, whatever that metallic object is, I have no idea whatsoever. Yeah, well, the last scene works, I think, as well. It's, I, I think this is a great last scene. With, with yeah, him, very. With this is one of my favorites uh, endings. The music coupled with Cooper um, at the statue. You know, he doesn't know what the hell's going on. He doesn't know that if his wife is supposed to pick him up or not. He's still off in, uh, you know, in dreamland. And I thought this was a poignant ending to, in my opinion, one of the, the better episodes. I really, really like this episode. Um uh, on multiple rewatches, I, I loved it originally. Um, I understand why maybe some people have a little bit of problems with it, but this was just great. I thought it was a fantastic episode. Yeah, it ended really strong. It touched my heart here at the end. I felt I felt for Dale Cooper lost in time, trying to get back to yeah, something. Yeah, we only knew, home. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we only knew how it was going to end up. Well, <laughs> I mean, he could be somehow in his you know muddled brain right now, wondering what year is this. I mean, he's probably just... still there. He's probably standing there yeah, with Laura, <laughs> standing in front of the statue right now. Until yeah. they pick it back up. <laughs> All right, well, we what... did another one. We got through another episode, my friend. Number four. Yeah, we did. Yeah. One thing I wanted before we uh, sign off here is that uh, in part eighteen, you know how Laura Palmer was or Cheryl Lee was listed in every credit sequence, even yeah. though. She wasn't in the episode other than the a brief shot of her yeah. yeah, homecoming. But in part 18, she's listed, listed twice, um, obviously as Carrie Page and as, as Laura Palmer. But um, I just thought that was curious. I never noticed that. Like, I, I you know, don't know why. Maybe I was just transfixed on Cooper's face, that super close-up of his huh? face over the credits that <laughs> they listed her twice. And uh, just another, it doesn't mean anything. I just love that little touch. Love it. Yeah, I think they would just put like Cheryl Lee as, uh, you know, both of the names right there as Laura Palmer and Carrie Page slash. Right? right, exactly. Instead of just doing two listings of it. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, on that note, any last thoughts for this uh, episode, my friend? I think I kind of summed it up before, didn't I? I just said, how, <laughs> I <don't> know. Uh, <laughs> you know, I love everything, but uh, I don't have like just blind love. I mean, I have certain criticisms, but really the show is growing uh, 
uh, in stature for me. I mean, I, 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 we talk about it all the time when we're, we're on, on the phone together and how much we love it. We really think it's this masterpiece, but uh, um, just watching it again with some time passing and there's, we know there's not going to be a show um, next week. And just to dive back into these individual little parts, to have these little moments here and there, I really appreciate all the little nuances and I'm picking up so many little different things. They're not necessarily like all these major clues, but living inside that uh, dream of an episode. And uh, it's, 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 it's a great place to be. Well, I think Mark Frost may have shot down one of your theories, though, today, my friend, about the FBI pen. Did you read that? <laughs> oh, when did we talked about this? Yeah, he he said it doesn't really have any kind of relevance, but he doesn't he say you'll have to talk to David about that? Yeah, he kind of was like, I don't have, I don't know anything about that, so it may have just been a, it may have just been a like, continuity or something. With with David Lynch seeing him especially on the Blu-ray, right, and how exact he is with even line readings. With Cooper, I just don't think to pin or not to pin. I mean, there was one part in the Red Room where they're trying to figure out schematics, and uh, I don't know if it was the first AD or not, said, uh, hey, we're going to have the furniture right there. And Lynch just like is kind of looking around. Then he finally hears what you know the first AD said. He goes, oh, no, 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 no furniture, no furniture. He knows exactly what he wants. So I don't think that there's just some uh, you know costume department wardrobe person uh, you know, forgetting to take the pen off or put it on and Lynch doesn't recognize it. I think it's a subtle clue uh, for the Cooper character, knowing that we have multiple Coopers. So I, it, I, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. So I think the pen is relevant. Well, if it's relevant and purposeful, don't you think it indicates that he's like either uh, in the dream world or not? You know, that's what it has to mean, right? It has to yeah, indicate no, that he's I in the lodge or he's in his unified lodge dream or he's out of the dream. Right, it could be in the dream or out of the dream because I re- we don't really think he's a match the lodge. up. Yeah, it does. He has oh, the well, pin in all the lodge scenes. We figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> the only time he Frost is wrong. The only time he doesn't have the pin is during the whole, really, the whole narrative. Like is when he leaves um, the purple room, comes out in Rancho Rosa, and is wearing the black suit throughout. He doesn't have the pin. He gets the pin once they show up in the boiler room in part seventeen. Yeah, and then he, he has, has it in the, the lodge, and then and then he has it in the lodge, and then he has it all in part eighteen and eighteen as well. So there you go, that's it. We figured it out. There you go. <laughs> On that note, uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. We'll probably be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. <laughs>